You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Thanks, Dale. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. After Dale made that announcement, you might be having a hard time concentrating. You want to go see the building. So hang on. It'll be about 30 minutes, and you'll get to go walk through it. Street smart is the, the term that we use to describe someone who knows how to survive on the streets of real life. It's a practical kind of wisdom that stands in contrast to being book smart. Now, you might think the Bible is primarily about being book smart because, well, it's a book. But while the Bible is a book, it is a book about real life. In other words, it is a book that's meant to be applied. It's a practical book. It's not just a book to learn. It's a book to be done. So in this series, we're working our way through the New Testament book of James because James is one of the more practical books in the New Testament portion of the Bible. Today, we turn our attention to what James has to say about conflict, about fighting. The streets of life are a rough and tumble place where conflict is commonplace. Last week, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but a fight broke out in Irvine at a political town hall meeting. People who disagree with each other actually started throwing punches. Now, sadly, this is not that uncommon this year. This past year, some of the long-standing conflicts that have been simmering below the surface for a long time have started to boil over, and the fighting has now spilled out onto the streets of, well, almost everywhere. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about conflict. But how can a book, the Bible, written thousands of years ago, help us with the conflicts of today? I mean, the fight in Irvine was over something called critical race theory. That's not even mentioned in the Bible. I mean, it's a new idea. It's only a few decades old, so the Bible doesn't mention it. Well, the Bible claims to be the actual words of God revealed over time to the different authors of the 66 books that make up the Bible. Now, there's a lot of evidence to support this amazing claim. But if it's true, and I believe it's true, then... God, through the words of the Bible, would know best how to get at the root causes of all conflict, even the arguments of the future that we might not even be able to imagine right now. And that is what the book of James gets at, the cause of all of this fighting. He starts out in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, if you're in the middle of a conflict with someone, how would you answer this question? Someone sees you fighting, they say, why are you fighting? Well, most people in conflict would point to the person they're fighting with and blame them for the conflict. There's something they said, something they did that touched this conflict off, something wrong. Now, let's just for a moment say that the assessment is accurate and the other person really did say and do something that was wrong. So what's the solution to this conflict? Well, most people would say, well, they need to come to their senses and stop doing and stop saying the wrong thing. And then this conflict will be resolved. So in the history of your life and in the history of the world, how likely is it that people who are doing and saying the wrong thing will suddenly come to their senses and stop it, stop doing it? Well, it's possible. It has happened. But it's pretty unlikely. And so what that means is the common solution that we have to conflict 
and that is the other person comes to their senses and stops doing the wrong thing, that solution has almost no chance of success. That's why fighting just continues. The issues change, the personalities change, but the fighting continues. It turns out that the cause behind every single conflict goes much deeper than just whatever the issue is that the people are fighting over. Here's what James goes on to say in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Now we're getting a little deeper here. Your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So you quarrel, then you fight. James is pointing to what we commonly refer to as the scarcity problem. What that means is there's not enough in this world for everyone to get all that they need, let alone all that they want. There's a scarcity problem. And that's a challenge because we all, part of being human is we want something. Why? Because we have desires. Deep inside of us, we all have desires. That's just part of being alive, part of being a human. In other words, we're not going through life happy, completely happy with everything the way it is right now. We all want something more than we currently have. Maybe we want to be treated better than we currently are. So we kill and covet and quarrel and fight. Really? I mean, kill sounds a little extreme for this group, but covet, quarrel, and fight, yeah, that, that rings true of all of us. So the question is, why do we get into fights with people over what we want? Why not just go and get what we want? Why do we have to mess with people over it? It's because there isn't enough to have what we want and them to have what they want. That's why we want something, but over and over again, we just don't get what we want. The resources of life are limited. They are scarce. And people get in the way of what we want. I mean, they want much of the same things we do. Now, sometimes there's enough for us both to get what we want, but often there isn't enough for both of us or all of us. So if they have what we want bad enough and they are standing in the way of us getting what we want, well, we will fight them for it. I mean, it'll start out just coveting, just wanting it, and then arguing, then quarreling, and then in extreme cases, it actually leads to death over getting what we want. Let me give you a personal example of how this works for me. Last week, I had a particularly long day. My days aren't usually this long, but finally about 9 o'clock at night, my responsibilities came to an end, and I was looking forward to this moment. And I sat down in my chair to watch a little TV. And just as I was sitting down, the voice of my wife from the other room came through and said she was having a problem with her computer and wondering if I could come help her. Now, in fairness, she didn't know I had just sat down. I mean, the timing was impeccable. Literally, I was this, I was mid-sit. I was just landed when the sentence finished. 
Well, you can see where this is going. I could not get what I wanted for that time slot and her get what she wanted for that time slot. Somebody needed to win, somebody needed to lose. We couldn't both get what we wanted because, well, time is one of those scarce commodities. <laughs> you can't just multiply time. Someone had to win, someone had to lose. So, being the big-hearted guy that I am, I decided <laughs> to let her win. But being the small-hearted guy that I am, I decided that I was going to be a poor loser about this. <laughs> now, you've, none of you know what I'm talking about, right? So I went in to help her with a computer, but it was very clear to her that I was not happy. And she should not have this problem. And so a conflict ensued between the two of us over just five minutes of time. Now, in... It would have been completely fine if I had said, oh, honey, I just sat down. Give me 30 minutes and I'll come in and help you. And I know she would have said, oh, okay, I didn't know. That's fine. But no, I decided to go all passive-aggressive on her and be, oh, sure, and then punish her for it. It never happens in marriage. <laughs> so I eventually came to my senses and I asked for her forgiveness because it was wrong what I did. Now, this is how conflict works at its basic grassroots one-on-one -on -one level. But this kind of conflict isn't limited, limited just the one-on-one -on -one level. What occurs at a grass, grassroots level between people escalates to larger and larger groups. It shows up as conflicts between groups of people and cultures and countries for the same issue, the same reason. I mean, the issues are bigger than the conflict between my wife and I last week, but the cause is the same. There are limited resources, and some other group or country has what we want. So one of the long-standing struggles in our world right now is the struggle in Israel, between Israel and the Palestinians. Why? Well, Israel was created by the UN in 1948. Understandably, the Palestinians, well, they want a nation too. But here's the problem. They both want it on the exact same piece of land. So, how do you solve that problem? Neither want to compromise. How do you solve that problem? Well, you, you can't. That's why the fighting continues. So, what is the solution to that problem? Well, if you can figure that out, you will win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> We've been working on that one for over 70 years as a world. It's interesting that one of the Nobel Prizes that is awarded each year is for the best idea in how to solve this scarcity problem. It's the Nobel Prize in economics. That's what economics is about, is how are limited resources allocated in a nation, in the world? Economy is from the Greek word, actually two Greek words, house, oikos, and accounts, nomos, oikos, nomos, economy. And it points to the fact that at a grassroots level, every household has to decide what they're going to do to allocate their limited resources. Now, some houses have more limited resources. Others have less limited resources, but they are all limited. And therefore, the money has to go into different accounts for different purposes to accomplish different things. Every person, every household has to economize. They have to figure out what they're going to do with the limited resource. And it's the same with the world. 
The world only has a certain amount of resources. How is it going to be allocated? Now, history is a record of the various economic answers that have been theorized and tried. For most of history, the answer wasn't really theorized. It was just all about power. And what that meant was the resources went to the strong, went to the powerful. That's how limited resources were divided. If you had power, you got more. If you were weak, you got next to nothing. And that's the way the world really has been for most of recorded history. Then, with the Enlightenment, an attempt was made to try to figure out, is there a better way to allocate resources than just letting kings and armies fight each other for it? And in the wake of that period of time, the Enlightenment, a new theory came. It was called capitalism. Capitalism basically says resources goes to ingenuity and hard work. Now, you may think you're in business class. There's a reason I'm going through this. And it's more than just to make use of my business degree. But capitalism, basically, there's a lot more to be said about it, but basically, it allocates resources to those with good new ideas and who work really hard. There's more to it than that, but that's the basic way the resources flow. Now, the Western world, for the most part, has adopted this form of economics. And an interesting thing has occurred is the pile of resources, not all resources, but some, especially money, has gotten larger because as people come up with new ideas and as they work hard, there's more resources generated, more dollars generated more money generated. But the problem with capitalism is that the playing field is not always level. And some people have cheated, and the justice system hasn't caught them. Or some places the justice system doesn't catch hardly anybody. And other people have used the resources they have to unfairly gain advantage and to oppress those who have less. So to solve the weaknesses, the problems with capitalism, another theory came along called socialism. Again, there's a lot said about this, but I think you could fairly summarize it this way. Resources go towards fairness, or the common term now used is equity. So the purpose behind socialism is the idea that it is actually wrong for some people to have more than others. That's a, an immorality is the idea behind socialism. And therefore, the role of government is to even things out. Now, historically, this theory has led to a lot of fighting and death where it's been tried in history. You can read this for yourself. And the reason is pretty obvious. People don't give up what they own freely. So you, first you pass laws, and eventually you have to show up with guns to get people to give up their stuff. And it gets bloody. Now, right now in the world, most economies are kind of a, a mixture between capitalism and socialism. But the trend seems to be heading more and more towards socialism. I'm not making a value statement right now. I'm just saying this is kind of the history of how this fight is going with this scarce problem. But now a new type of socialism is emerging. It's called critical race theory. These are the fighting words of our day. And honestly, I didn't want to talk about it. 
about a week and a half ago as I was studying this passage, I realized that God really has some things to say about the fight. But I didn't want to say anything about this because I didn't want another thing that happened in Irvine to show up here. And I know it's really hard to even talk about this without people just getting all fired up, so calm down. Um, this is a, a theory that most of us had not even heard about a little more than a year ago. And I would encourage you, I'm going to summarize it for you out of all of my research. I've been trying to figure this thing out for quite a time. It's really easy to read people ranting on both sides of this issue. That's really easy. If you do research based on your favorite rant sources, you're not going to get a lot of understanding. I would encourage you to look a little deeper and try to figure out what is the thought, what is the thinking, what, what's, what's driving this idea so that you can understand it. I'm going to give you my summary, but I encourage you, don't trust me. Use your own brain. Do your own thinking. Come to your conclusions on this. But here's what I've come to understand about this theory. The authors themselves of this theory, so this is in fairness to them, this is not a characterization, this is not an attack, the authors themselves say that this theory is a new form of Marxism. They call it neo-Marxism. So we kind of have to understand a little bit about Karl Marx. Karl Marx was the author, of course, behind the Soviet socialism experiment that turned out everyone would admit to be an absolute disaster because it cost 100 million lives, is the estimate. And that's why this is neo-Marxism. Nobody wants old, original Marxism, because that killed a lot of people. This is Marxism properly applied, is what the writers say. New Marxism, neo-Marxism. Now, what Karl Marx did is he reduced all of history down to a struggle between two groups. Everything in history, he said, could be understood by reducing it to a simple struggle that's always existed and will always exist between two groups. His two groups were these, the owners of the means of production and the workers. Those who owned the businesses, owned the power, and those who enriched them. Those were the two groups. All of history, he said, is a struggle between those two groups. And his solution was that the workers needed to rise up and revolt and take back the means of production and distribute it evenly. Critical race theory is a twist on that same framework, that same idea. Like Marxism, it reduces history to the struggle between two groups. All of history is boiled down to the struggle between two groups. But the two groups are not the ones Marx identified. They're not the owners and the workers. The two groups are the oppressors and the oppressed. All of history, critical race theory says, is a struggle between those who are oppressing and those who are being oppressed. And therefore, the theory, the solution to all of this fighting is that the resources need to go to the oppressed. That's the solution. So the question is, how do you know which group you're in? I mean, under Marx, you could pretty much figure out, hey, I'm working at a factory. I'm a worker. Oh, I'm an owner. I know I'm an owner. But how do you know if you're being oppressed or if you're doing the oppressing? Well, it's not, by, it's not the way you think. It's not by whether you're actually personally oppressing anyone or actually personally right now being oppressed. That's not how you know. 
you can know which group you're in by looking at the race that you belong to. If you are part of certain ethnic minorities, you are being oppressed. And if you are not, you are doing the oppressing. This is the theory. Now, in part, I can understand why this theory has gained traction, because if you look at the history just of this nation, racial oppression, racial oppression has been true of our history. It's not been a pretty story. It's not been a perfect story. And if we're honest, in varying degrees, the oppression continues to this day. There is still racial injustice. But the challenge that I have with this theory is that it makes everyone either a victim or a perpetrator, regardless of what they're doing. And what that does is that takes the power of reform and personal change out of the equation. You know, Martin Luther King called for racial reform, rightly so. But he called for reform, not revolt like this group is. The reason he called for reform was, well, because he was a Christian. He was a Baptist pastor. And therefore, he believed what the Bible taught, that God can change the human heart. And what he pushed for was change in the laws, change in the nation. But this group has decided it's taken too long. And so the theory is that, just like Marx called for, what's needed is a revolution. Everything needs to be overthrown. Now, there are many different applications. Not everyone who's promoting this buys into every part of it. But at its core, this is the idea that's being out there right now. So when you look at this, this long history, what's behind every one of these words is a lot of struggle over scarcity. So when it comes to fighting, we are hopeless. So what is God's answer? If God could circle one of those, which one would God circle? I would say none of them. Now, I would say, in my opinion, you have to decide for yourself, some of these theories are worse than others. Some of these things will make human life much worse and much more painful and not better. Some of these theories will make the racial problems actually worse, not better. But none of these will end the fighting. None of them will. Because the cause goes deeper than scarcity. And James goes on to that. Verses 2 and 3. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask God. God's not even in the equation. And when you ask, when you do ask God, you don't receive. Why? Because... You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. It's still all about you. James begins by giving us the clue of what the deeper problem is. James says the missing piece in every economic theory. Now, he's not saying his exact words, but the application is every miss, or God is the missing piece in every economic theory. See, every economic theory, every one of these assumes that if we would all get what we want, we would be happy and at peace. And we won't. Why? Because we were created for a relationship with God. That's at the core of who we are. And what that means is the stuff of this world 
will never make us happy. We need God to be truly happy over time. And even if we do turn to God and ask him to help us get the stuff, like this verse is saying, we're still missing the point. God is not a means to what we really want, the stuff. God is what we want. So this is pointing to the deeper problem. There's a deeper problem than scarcity, and that's the second point we're talking about this morning. There is a friendship problem that we have, the friendship problem. In other words, James goes on to say, we've all picked the wrong friend. We've decided to make this world our friend, and it is not a good friend. He goes on to say this in verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, let's first talk about what it means to be a friend of anyone. What does it mean to be a friend? Well, friends are the ones that you go to when you need help. It could be a big need. It could be a small need. But when you need help, friends are who you call. Friends are the ones that you trust because they have come through for you again and again countless times. Friends are the ones that you open up your heart and let them into your heart, and as a result, you and I are changed by the friends that we choose. As part of being a friend means you have access to my heart, and therefore you change me. This is the kind of attachment, James is saying, that we are developed, we're, we're created to have with God. He is the one that we are to go to primarily for help. He is the one that we are to trust more than anyone or anything else. He is the one that we are to let into the inner parts of our heart and in doing so be changed by him. The problem is we already have another best friend there at the center of our heart, and that's this world. The things of this world were meant only to be mere acquaintances. They have become our best friends. They are the things that we run to when we have a need. They are the things, let's be honest, that we really trust in most. These are the things that we have let into our hearts, and we have been transformed. We have been changed by the things of this world. And God, conversely, tends to be more of an acquaintance of ours. Someone we know, maybe. Someone we may even like. But he's not someone that we're really, really attached to. And what's God's response to this? This is shocking. He calls this hatred towards him. That sounds a bit extreme. I mean, why won't God let us have any other friends? Well, the clue comes from the opening statement when the word adultery or adulteress is used. He says, God says, you adulterous people. That's marriage talk. I mean, you talk to a spouse who's been cheated on, and they're not happy that their spouse has found a new friend. Oh, no, they're furious. Rightly so. They feel rejected because they are. They have been literally hated by their marriage partner. Why? Because marriage is an exclusive relationship. You know, when I, my wife and I, 36 years ago, made a vow to each other, part of that vow was that we would be faithful to each other, and the additional phrase was, forsaking all others, we would be faithful to each other until death parts us. 
That doesn't mean we couldn't have any other friends, but that meant that there was going to be no other lover. She was going to be at the center of my heart. I was going to be at the center of her heart. We were going to not let anyone else compete for that place. That's what marriage is about. It's an exclusive relationship, and it's a picture of our relationship with God. That's the nature of our relationship with God. Having a relationship with God is not just adding a little God to your life. It's not that kind of relationship. It's putting God as the top priority of your life, number one in every decision you make. It's putting God at the very center of your heart. It's that kind of relationship. And God is jealous about us, not because he's so needy and insecure, but because he knows that we are so needy and insecure. God loves us. And he knows that every affair that we have with this world will end in heartache and pain and devastation. And he's trying to protect us from that pain. That's why Jesus came to this earth. God took on a body to restore this relationship. And if we turn to God through his son, Jesus Christ, we get an amazing gift to help us restore God to his rightful position. We get the Holy Spirit, the presence of God on the inside. James refers to this in the next verse, verse 5. He says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? What that means is when the Holy Spirit arrives in your heart after you've decided to follow Jesus Christ, part of what the Holy Spirit does is he envies. In other words, as you start pursuing a love for the world on the inside, there's this tension that you feel. It's God's presence. It's kind of like taking a picture of your spouse with you when you go on a business trip and looking at it whenever you're tempted. It's God on the inside turning your heart towards him and away from other things. And this presence of God, the Holy Spirit inside, makes it possible for us to learn how to love God more than this world. But the problem is we have a long history of loving this world first. And that's why James says this in the next verse. But, that's a big but, but he gives us more grace. Why would he give us more grace? Because <sighs> we keep cheating on God. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What this is saying is God understands how deep our love for this world is, and he is patient, and he is gracious with us on one condition. The condition is humility. The condition is that we actually humble ourselves and admit the truth about our need for him. But if, on the other hand, we arrogantly decide that we don't need God, and we join in the fight with everyone for more resources here, then God says, I'm going to enter the fight against you. I will oppose you. You know, you don't want to get in your three-point stance and look up and see God on the other side of the line. You are not going to win that one. God will oppose us if we get arrogant. He may oppose us by keeping us from getting what we want, or he may oppose us from just sucking the joy out of what we do have. But he will oppose. Not because he's mean and nasty, but because he knows we have got to break our love affair with this world if we're ever going to be happy. So that brings us to the practical part of the message. Up to this point, it's all been theory. 
Now let's get real. How do you change friends? How do you change best friends? How do you demote this world in your heart and elevate God? Well, first you have to decide you want to. It takes, but it takes time to do this. This is what the next four verses are about. James 4, 7 through 10. Now hang with me. I know we've been doing a lot of thinking, but this is the practical part. He says, submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, there's a lot in that. So the way I want to go through this is by describing how I pray through these four verses. These four verses, not every morning, but many, many mornings, I pray through these verses as I begin my day. And here's what I do. First of all, I declare my friendship decision. I declare that I have decided that I want God to be my best friend and not this world. That's what the first part of this, these verses are about. It says, this is how I declare it, submit yourselves then to God. So I'll just say, God, I bow before you. I submit myself to you today. I know that the world and all that it offers is nothing close to all that you offer. So I bow before you and not the things of this world today. And then I'll resist the devil. I know, I know the enemy is behind making all of this stuff look shinier than it really is. And I know he's a liar and he wants to destroy my life. So I, I'm going to push against that today. And God, I, I want to get close to you. And I'm so grateful that when I even make the smallest effort, man, you just rush right to me. You come near to me. There's not this massive, miles-long set of things I need to do for you to come close to me. All I have to do is turn and, man, you're right there. You come near to me. You are my best friend. I've made that decision. The second thing I do is I admit my friendship failures from the past day. So if it's been just a day since I prayed this, I'll look over the previous 24 hours. If it's been a week, I'll look past. And what I mean by that is the sin that I've committed. Sin is basically saying, God, you're not my best friend. This is. So I admit my friendship failures. That's what these Words are about wash your hands, you sinners. What that means is, just like when you wash your hands, you don't wash it generally. If you've got a big piece of dirt right here, you go after that piece of dirt. So if I've got a specific sin, I confess that. I wash that away in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I just get specific. I did this. I did that. I thought this. I said that. Wash my hands, sinner. And then I purify my heart. I admit that the reason I sin is because I'm of two minds. Yeah, I've just stated that you're my best friend, and I'm capable just 15 minutes later to go out and say that this world is my best friend. And I'll just admit I'm struggling, and I ask God, purify my heart. And then the third thing I do is I grieve. And it took me a while to figure out what this is talking about. It says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not talking about some manufactured emotion. I don't put teardrops in my eyes and try to gin up tears for some random reason. No, this is talking about real stuff. Why grieve? Well, let me ask you, 
Have you ever changed best friends throughout your life? Yeah. Usually it's for one of two reasons. Either they move away or you move away. That's not going to happen in this world. I mean, Jeff Bezos got into space for four minutes, but he's back. <laughs> we're not leaving this world indefinitely. So we're going to be best friends struggling with, because they're they're they live in our neighborhood. The world lives in us. We, we're here. But the reason, other reason we change best friends is because they've hurt us. There's been pain. That's what this is talking about. This world is an awful friend. And I allow that pain to sink in. This world has hurt me. It's not worthy of best friend status. So I just let that sink in. I try to think through how, how am I hurting now? How have I been hurt? The other way that I grieve is even though I know this and I have declared God to be my best friend, I keep failing him. I grieve over my sin. And I, I allow this emotion to sink in. I mean, not for 30 minutes, for a few minutes. I don't just move on. I allow the emotion to sink in. And then I end by saying, God, would you please lift me up? Would you please change me? And then I begin my day. And I do this regularly because this is the process that we need to go through to begin over time to break our adulterous hearts from falling in love with this world and moving our hearts towards putting God in first place. So I would encourage you to consider using this. Most people are fighting to get more out of the pile of this world. But this world, as I said, is an awful friend. It's not worth the fight. So what we do is we fight with ourselves to break our long-standing love affair with this world. The economic theories that we went through earlier, they will make life better or worse. They really do matter. It's not, eh, it doesn't matter. No, they represent more or less pain. And less pain is always what we should go for. But they'll never solve the real problem. The real problem is we need God. Now, I want to invite the band to make their way up on stage uh, to lead us in our final song. But before I pray, again, I wanted to remind you of that opportunity that Dale talked about to tour through the construction of our new kids' building. So this week, I think Monday, is when we have uh, our framing inspection, which is a big inspection. So please be praying about that. But once we pass that inspection, hopefully on Monday, then the insulation begins to go on the walls and the sheetrock goes in after that. So this is your one chance to see the building when you can see through the walls. So it's kind of neat to walk in there. I've been doing it some. So if you can, take a chance to walk through that uh, right after we're done here. So let's pray. Father, we, um, we admit that we are adulterous people, that we have decided that this world is what we really want, that something or someone in this world is what's going to make us happy. When the truth is that only you can fill that emptiness on the inside that Rachel prayed about. So, Father, we confess the adultery of our heart to you. And we are so surprised and so grateful that you are so gracious to us that the moment we turn around to you, you draw near to us. I pray that you would purify our hearts and you would cure us of our double-mindedness. 
Father, we pray for our nation and for this world as there's debates and fights going on about how we're going to divide up the limited resources. The answer to that question means more or less pain. So God, we pray for less pain. But Father, in the middle of it, help us to hold out the word of life, the only answer to all of these problems. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.